I know what I'm going to say this morning. I've written it down, a lot of it. And, uh, and I have to tell you, in a sense, you've already heard it. You've sung it. You've preached it through the singing this morning. These four great hymns that we sang this morning echo so much of what I think the Lord wants to say to us today. Um, I guess what I'm saying is later you might want to go get online and just sing all these songs again as God works in your heart with this. Today we come to the conclusion of Second Peter. It is uh, a marvelous book, a short book. We spent many months studying its pages. I hope it will not be the end of your um, loving this great letter. I hope you'll find your way back to it many times. You could read the whole thing through in just a short amount of time. And I pray that it will stir in your heart in a good way. Um, we begin with the conclusion this morning, Second Peter 3, verses 14 through 18. If I could in, ask you to indulge me one more time in honor of God's word, let's stand as we read this, his word. You notice the first word, therefore, which reminds us this is connected to what's gone before. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters, we don't know exactly who the people Peter is writing to. We assume, at least I assume, that they're the same churches that are mentioned at the beginning of 1 Peter. That 1 Peter and 2 Peter were to the same people. There's not certainty of that. But if they were, it's the churches of Asia Minor. Paul did so much of his life there. Uh, so the letters of the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians, almost certainly these would be among the letters, perhaps far more than that, that these people have read from Paul. As he does in all his letter, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things which are hard to understand. Well, of course there are. You're talking about the living God. You're talking about the great, great things that God has done. A God who is beyond our comprehension, yet who's revealed much of himself to us, but a God that you could fully understand, that you got all the, all the every question answered and figured out, is not a God that's worthy of your worship. Don't get tripped over that. And of course, it's hard to understand at times, but it's the ignorant and the unstable who twist it to their own destruction, as they do. And here he calls Paul's letters Scripture. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you spoke through Peter and have been speaking to our lives in these days. And again, we ask you to, to come to to do the hard work of opening our hearts and mind to hear you, to pull us away from so many things that distract us from the most important thing. Help us to see all of our deepest needs and questions and hopes that will be found in you and as you speak your word. Do that to us this morning. Oh, Father, if there's any that would hear these words today, we pray that they would be drawn to the lovely Savior, to our great Lord, to Jesus Christ, and they would turn in trust to him and find life in him. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Last week we were looking here in this third chapter where Peter asks a question back in verse 11. He's been talking 
about the coming day of the Lord, that big theme of the Bible. He's made it clear that for those apart from Christ, those who have not received his mercy and grace, it will be a day of judgment and destruction. Uh, but for those who are saved, it will be a day of commendation and joyful eternity. He says, now, in light of that certainty that it absolutely is coming, he asks the question, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And I believe now as he completes the letter, completes this chapter, and completes the whole thought that he's had, he's trying to, for one final time, answer that question. What sort of people ought we to be in holiness and godliness and how we live? I want to take these passages, these verses, and uh, try to put in a form that will be easy maybe to stick in your mind and heart for a bit. So I want to talk to you this morning about five words that he uses that are above all else. There are no words higher or more important to grasp and to see in this passage than these five words. Then I want to point out to you one daily goal that ought to be the goal of every Christian, every believer. And finally, out of that, we will also see two tasks, two things that ought to be on the agenda every day that we outside seek to have in our life. So we start with the five words that are above all else. We move to the final concluding sentence in verse 18 where he says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So you see the five words, of course. The five words, you know what they are. You see them? Well, I'm going to tell you what they are, and I'm right. If you chose other words, you're wrong. These are the five words, okay? Just get that clear. Our Lord, I'm not counting the word and, by the way, our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. The five words are about one person. And above everything else that we can say from this letter, from the New Testament, about what Christianity is about, it is about our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. And those five words are absolutely key. In Peter's day, people all over the world recognized and worshipped a variety of gods and lords and masters. They understood that many people had different lords and gods and masters. But Christians did not hesitate to say, and it created great problems for them, that out of all these lords and gods and saviors worshipped by men, there was in fact only one Lord and Savior and God worth being worshipped who was really and true, and that was found in Son of God, Jesus Christ. Christians affirmed then, and we affirm today, that Jesus Christ is not one of many spiritual leaders in the long religious history of the world. He's not one of Hinduism's 330 million gods. He's not one of the 140 prophets acknowledged by Islam. He is not Jesus the Great or Napoleon the Great. He is, he is, he is Jesus the Great. He's not great in the sense that other men are. He is Jesus, and there is no other. He has no peers, no rivals, no successor. There's no one like him. John Stott makes these points. John Stott, by the way, is the great uncle of Matt. I don't know if y'all knew that. Uh, John Stott makes the point that it is in this simple phrase of Jesus Christ we find the uniqueness of, of what we have in Christ. In Christianity, we have what no other religious system or philosophical system can ever provide. We have Christ, and there is none like him. I don't know how many total different titles and terms and pictures are given to describe Jesus in the scriptures. There are, some have said there's 49 or 50. 
Many years ago when I was a pastor in New Smyrna Beach at First Baptist Church, I spent a year taking just 12 of the, of the titles of the, of the names of Jesus, Son of, Son of God, Lamb of God, um, the door, the, the good shepherd, the alpha and the omega. We took a month for each one of them. Some of the rich I, in my memory, so much I forget, but I remember that year and how what a blessing it was to spend that time in those, those words. Well, more often, these pictures we have of Jesus, there is a title for him that is found most frequently in the New Testament. Sometimes he is simply called Jesus or Christ. Sometimes he is also called Lord. Often those are put together, Lord Jesus, Lord Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's here in in 2 Peter 3.18 that we get the full title, our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. That is the great first confession of the early church, of Christians. It is the creed that everything begins with, Jesus is Lord. You know those important words in Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him to the dead, you will be saved. It is an enormous thing to say Jesus is Lord. 200 years before the birth of Christ, Jewish scholars recognized the need for the Jewish people to have the Old Testament scriptures, we call them the Old Testament, to have their scriptures translated into Greek. Greek had become the common language of the world, and for many Jewish people spread across the world, Greek was really their mother tongue. And so the decision and the effort was made to translate from the Hebrew the Old Testament into Greek. Now, that was always a big challenge to go from one language to another like that. But particularly, it was for them the great challenge when they came to a particular word in the Old Testament. And that word was actually a name. It was the sacred name of God. We would call it Yahweh. Older days, we call it Jehovah. Most scholars today would agree it's better pronounced Yahweh. It is the sacred name used over and over in the Old Testament. And the Jewish people at that point would not speak that name. And the scholars didn't feel like they had the right to translate it or even transliterate it. And so what are they going to use when that name comes up? What they did is they took the Greek word kurios, the word for Lord, and that's what they used as they translated the name, the sacred name of God. That carries over. The new, in most of our versions of the Bible, you look at the Old Testament, you will find the word LORD in all capital letters. That's an indication to you that's the sacred holy name of God. That's Yahweh, Jehovah. Now, curious for the Jews was the most exalted title that could be given to God in the Greek language. And yet, knowing that this was the divine title, that it was used in this way, these Christians did not hesitate to use that very wording to describe and apply it to Jesus. They called Jesus, Hokurios, the Lord, the title for God. They went further than that, though. They went to the Old Testament and they looked at Scripture after Scripture that described the, the nature of God, that described God himself. And then they took that same wording and they applied it to Jesus. Just one illustration, Isaiah 55. To me, God speaking, he says, to every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And then, of course, you know what that happens in the, the New Testament, where Paul takes those Old Testament words. Maybe, maybe he actually didn't create it himself. It may have been a hymn the church was already singing, but he applies those very same terminology and applies it to Jesus. Now that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every test 
come confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we say Jesus is Lord, we mean that he is God. He is absolutely divine. We saw this already, of course, in this letter. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, he spoke of how the Christians he was writing to, how they have by faith received, and he uses it again, the righteousness, and notice what he says, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here he says our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, at the end of the letter, but he means the same thing. He is the God and Savior, the Lord and Savior, our Jesus Christ. Now, these Jewish Christians were as monotheistic. They believed strictly in one God just as much as any Jew or Muslim does today. And yet they were saying that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Jehovah. There is nothing like this, as Stott points out, in any other religion. In classical Buddhism, there was no God at all. Really no religion at all. It was that 500 years after Buddha had died before any divine honors or qualities were attributed to him. Hinduism is full of claims of avatars, of a divine descendants from the god Vishnu or Krishna or the like. But in no way are they any sense like, like the incarnate Jesus Christ. In Jesus of Nazareth, God took on human nature, human flesh, once for all and forever. Uniquely. He is seated at the right hand of God today. As he sits there, he is fully man and he is fully God. He is still carries our humanity with him forever. Jesus is Lord. He is God's eternal son. He is the word made flesh. Colossians says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the sovereign creator, the ruler of the universe, the church. He is Lord. But he's not just Lord. He is Savior. He's our Savior. He's the Lord and Savior. All of what Christianity is about is a rescue religion. It's the message that people like us who are helpless, and he has come to save us because we can't save ourselves. Peter will make the point, as he's already made it. We looked at it last week. He makes it again in these verses we read a moment ago with just a little phrase. But he reminds us that, that he is a God who's waiting patiently. And patience equals salvation. While he is being patient, there's still an opportunity to be saved. So he says in verse 15 and about this business of him being our Savior, he says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Jesus told the story, we all know it well, I hope, about the young man who decided he wanted his inheritance. He wanted it now. His father gave it to him. He went off to the far country, lived against everything he'd ever been taught at home, makes a mess of his life. But one of the great pictures in that story is that the, the father who represents God is the one who waits. When that boy comes home, they didn't have to go get the father. He was there waiting, looking for him. For day after day, he'd been like sitting there on the porch looking for that, his son to come over the crest of the hill. You can imagine him going out and, and going to the nearest crossroads and looking this way and looking that way, hoping today might be the day his boy would return. It's this incredible picture of the patience and the grace of a holy God. Such gentleness and kindness. And Jesus reveals all of that to us. But he also reveals that this patience is not forever. That when the day of the Lord comes, it'll be too late. But it hasn't come yet. Because it hasn't come, there's still time. The Savior waits. The Savior who gave us life, who lived a perfect life, the life we couldn't live, died the death that we should have lived, tore for our sin and our penalty in our place. He's been raised from the dead, 
A new creation has begun. And for those of us in Christ, these old decaying bodies we live in now, there's coming a day when we will enter that new creation with new bodies just like Jesus. But here's a God who's come to rescue us, to save us in his love, rising from the death. There's no parallel to that in any other religion. Buddha looks at our predicament and says it's a predicament of suffering, not sin. Hinduism says the problem is the illusion of space-time experience. And popular Hinduism has taken up a horrible idea that I hear some of you use. Did you spit it out of your mouth and never utter it again? Karma. Karma is, is a doctrine of retribution. Karma says that every one of us, for every bad, wrong thing we've done, you're going to have to eat the fruit of that retribution. You're going to have to eat the fruit of that sin. There's no getting out of it. And what you don't treat right now in this life, you're going to experience it in the next life. In an endless cycle of, of, of reincarnation, reincarnation, but no forgiveness ever. You pay for it. Islam proclaims that God is merciful. Over and over, you'll read in the Quran, in the name of Allah, the compassionate and merciful. But you have to ask, who is, who is Allah merciful to? And you will find that he's merciful only to those who are good. He is only merciful to those who deserve his mercy. That merciful is, this comes to those who merit the mercy. They say their prayers. They do their fasting at Ramadan. They pay their taxes. They make their pilgrimages. Those are the ones who receive his mercy. But a person who has not lived that life, who deserves nothing from God's hand, only judgment, will only get judgment from Allah. They will receive what they deserve. It's only in Jesus Christ that we're told of a God who comes and offers mercy and grace to those who do not deserve it, to those who are undeserving, which is every last one of us. People just don't see it, but if they saw it, we all deserve judgment. And it comes in an offer of free salvation. There's nothing like that anywhere else in the world. You'll not find it in any other system. You may find some good ideas, some ideas, some philosophies, some this, things and that in, in these other religions, Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism. There, there can be some positive, you know, go ahead and stretch with your yoga. Just don't, don't mess with the other part of it. <laughs> I'm going to split a church over yoga. <laughs> if I say we're not doing it. <laughs> anyway, that's another story. You decide your own problems. Um, I tell you what you won't find in any of those other places, any of those other religions, any of those other philosophies. You will never find a Savior who will say, this is my blood of the new covenant that's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You only find that in Jesus, only in him. And so we bear witness to a God who came in Christ to shed his blood, to die for us. We know him as Jesus, our Savior. And there's one other, one of, one of these words we have to focus on, the word Lord, the word Savior, and finally, word our he is our lord he is our savior paul would write to the philippians those marvelous words he says indeed i count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord he is a personal god who knows us in a personal relationship here in 2021 we know him he was born and lived and died in first century Palestine. But here we are 2,000 years later, and we know him. He is alive and available. He has been raised, and we have a relationship with him. Again, there is nothing comparable to that in any other system in this world. The Buddhist does not claim to know Buddha. 
Confucianist does not claim to know Confucius. The Muslim does not claim to know Muhammad. The Marxist does not claim to know Karl Marx. They revere, they, they honor these teachers, but they don't know them. They don't have a relationship with them. Jesus, yes, was a teacher of the past. He has left us his word of what he taught. But more than that, he is not just one that gives us ideas and ideals and philosophies. He is one that we know personally in attitude and trust and devotion. He lives within us. And so you read phrases like this throughout the New Testament. Whom not having seen, you love. Whom not having seen, you love. That's what these Peter people that Peter's writing to. They'd never met Jesus. They'd never seen him. But they had come not just to know about him. They had come to love him. The New Testament says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. He goes on to say, Christ in you, in you, the hope of glory. We have this personal, intimate relationship and communion that's the heart of the Christian faith. And so, at the heart of everything, the key to everything are these five words. Our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, like no other. Now, out of that, Peter makes it clear that there is one daily goal that the Christian is to experience. One daily goal. So what is it? Well, it's here again in verse 18. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of him. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Want to sum up what ought to happen every day, what your goal when you get out of bed every morning, you can put it a lot of different ways, but it is that I would grow in the grace and the knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The two things you notice he says are required for growth. You have to grow in grace and you have to grow in knowledge. Now, when he says grow in grace, what does he mean? I don't think he's just mean grow, become a more gracious person. Graciousness would be being helpful and courteous and kind and seeing people are needy and helping them out. Well, that, 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 that certainly Christians ought to be that way. That ought to be a growing thing in our life, I suppose. But that's not the point here. Growing in grace is something deeper than that. We remember that God's grace is that free, undeserved favor and mercy of God. It's the way we were brought to Christ. It's the way we began our Christian experience. You know the first, Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Grace is the foundation of everything that God does in our life. He does not do it because we have a capacity to produce something worthwhile. He does it because he chooses to love us that way. It is the free, unmerited mercy of God bestowed upon us without our earning it in any sense. The whole of salvation depends upon the free grace and love of God in Jesus Christ beginning to end. Grace is the secret of everything God wants to do. And we cannot speak of it often enough. We cannot do too much to, to grow in understanding. And all of life is built on that. Do you know what an encouragement it is that God is all of grace? That means anytime you look at another Christian, you see God doing things in them and through them and for them, it means he can do the same thing for you. Because in whatever way he is blessing and using and maturing and growing someone else, he's not doing it because of what's in them. He's doing it because of his grace. The same grace that he has for you. The same love that makes everything possible he would call for you in your life. This is the hope of the Christian experience. To grow in grace. 
remember Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Paul may, I may plant, Paul may plant, Apollos may water. Where does the growth come from? But it is God who gives the increase. That's on in our work together as a church. That's in our lives spiritually. Was there ever a finer Christian that I know of anywhere that you know of than the Apostle Paul? What a marvelous man. How easy it would have been to look at his life and say, whoa, what, you know, it's amazing. What, but all he could say about himself is, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Whatever you see in me, whatever has been a blessing, it's not because of anything in me. It's by God's grace. If you think that you're growing in Christ, if you think you're growing as a mature, maturing Christian, then one of the things that I can absolutely tell you is you will lose all sense of self-congratulations and self-importance. Sometimes I listen back to what I think in my mind and even what I say with my lips, imagining how mature and what a noble, wonderful Christian I am, and I hear self-congratulations and self-importance, and that's an absolute proof that is not a sign of growth in Christ. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And the whole of the Christian spirit, not just the beginning, but the whole of it, is built upon grace. That's why it's the hymn of all hymns, isn't it? John Wharton, Newton's marvelous words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, a guy who needed a little help. No, a wretch like me. I was once was lost, but now I was found. Didn't find my way, I was found like the prodigal son. I was blind like those men that Jesus met, but now I see by his grace. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. I wouldn't have had enough sense in my brain to know to fear God, to recognize his holiness and to see my sin. I'd have just lived like most people live, thinking I could handle it all, but it was his grace that made me fear God. And then that same grace, my fears relieved as I came to the cross. Through many dangerous toils and snares, I've already come. I worked hard and I got through it. No, it's just grace that brought me thus far, and it's grace going to lead me home. It's all of grace. So we must grow in grace. It's centering our life in this absolute fact that's at the center of everything God's doing. And then we must grow in knowledge. Well, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we need to be fed on His Word. We need the Scriptures. Peter, in his first letter, talks about that. He says that, uh, um, I'm going to skip this one. It says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into all salvation. Why aren't the words back on the screens up here? Can you put them up there? Yeah, they're supposed to be up there. It's not three screens. Okay, here we go. Like newborn infants long for spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation. Back in verses 15 and 16, Peter has spoken some really, as you know, very important words about the Scripture. We've looked at them a number of times. They're full of significance. He makes the point here in those verses how, how critical it is that we know how to handle correctly the Word of God. He says those who are ignorant, sometimes they're willfully ignorant, but they're those who twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. And you must not let anybody do that to you, and you need to know the Word of God that it doesn't happen to you. But so interesting, of course, Paul refers, Peter rather refers to Paul's letters, and he calls them Scripture. Paul, you remember, in 1 Timothy 3.15, refers to the Gospel of Luke and refers to it as Scripture. The neck of the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, will keep us from growing. Jesus models this for us in his humanity. He was fully divine, fully man, not a mixture of the two, not half and half. He was fully God and fully man. And in the fullness of his humanity, Jesus models the whole Christian life, including how you learn to grow in knowledge. We read of him as a 12-year-old boy, 
growing, increasing in wisdom and understanding. In other words, he studied the Word of God. He learned it in the synagogue. He learned it in his home. He applied himself to know the Scriptures. So when he reaches that critical moment in his life where he faces these incredible temptations in the wilderness, he's able to withstand and be a champion for the things of God because he had, had immersed himself in Deuteronomy chapter 8. My friends, there's nothing more important than knowing and growing in the knowledge of God, and we do that through his word, the Bible. John Wesley, that great Methodist, said it like this. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God just hovering over a great gulf. In a way, that's so much of what Peter's been saying, that we're here for a short time, and then there's coming. He says, till a few moments hence, I am no more seen, and I will drop into an unchangeable eternity. That is the state of every person. Our life is just a mist. It's a short time. And then it's going to come where the decision that you've made or the decision you don't think you've made, but you're going to have to live with that decision of not making a decision for Christ. You're going to drive, and it's going to be forever and eternity. He goes on to say, I want to know, in light of that, I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. He's talking about the Bible. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book people who want people who want to grow in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ must do it by the knowledge of his life revealed in this book the Bible but of course there's a big question if you have taken this passage and uh, you what we talk about I hope you're talking about in your move groups soap and we learned how to, to really think these things so there's a question that comes up naturally just an honestly reading particularly that verse 18 um, is this knowledge about Christ that he calls us to, is it about Christ? That is, is it about the things I learned from the Bible, what I can understand with my mind, or is it about my relationship to Christ? In other words, are we talking about, when we talk about knowing Christ, growing in knowledge of Christ, are we talking about head knowledge, or are we talking about heart knowledge? Um, my, uh, father-in-law to the point he's no longer able to drive and so Terry and I were taking him home as we do these days he still lives in the same house that um, was living in when I first met Terry and we must drive into that driveway a hundred times thousand times I don't know but this Friday night I drove and we were in that driveway he'd gone to the house and uh, Terry came back to the car and um, it dawned on me I just remembered something I just hadn't remembered in a long time I remembered our first date Went out, played putt-putt golf. She beat me. About 9.30, I took her back home. And we sat in the car in that driveway on that spot. All I know, I don't know exactly how long we were there, but I know the paper boy came and threw the paper, and we decided, oops, we probably better call it quits for this. Sometime, certainly after 4 in the morning. I fell in love with Terry Ellis. She wasn't Terry Ellis then, but I fell in love with her that night. And I want to know everything about her. When you love someone, you want to know everything about them. It's not a matter of head knowledge or heart knowledge. Those two always go together. Can you have, have imagined a, a relationship of, of love and, and growing communion where you, you say, I really love this person, I, I, I like this person, I want that friendship, I don't want to know anything about them. Of course not. If you're in that, you want to know all about them. And that's exactly the way this knowledge of, of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ is, how it grows. 
Jesus said it like this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You really want to know Jesus. You read his word, you read his scriptures, you hear his promises, you hear his commands, and by faith you believe them, you act on them, and you obey them. And as you do that, suddenly the ideas move from ideas to the experience with him. You see how he is faithful and true. You see how wise his words are. But you can't separate growth and knowledge and, and, and this relationship with him. It cannot happen. But when you have it all together, well, it makes, it makes the last sentence of the book very easy, doesn't it? To him be the glory now, forever, and to the, all of eternity. Amen. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. That is the ambition of Peter's life. It's the hallmark of Christian growth. We become not self-centered, we become Christ-centered. To live is Christ. All right, so five words about the one person. That's the heart of it all. The focus is on your relationship, knowing Lord Jesus and Savior Christ. And then the goal of that life in Christ is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then we end this morning very quickly with at least two tasks that I spot in this text that I think is what flows out of that. This is what you do if, you re if all that is real. The first task I would mention is simply diligence. Jesus is the center of my life. I want to honor him. I want to obey him. I want to follow him. I want to be like him. You remember the context of this whole thing is he's coming back soon. We are to be ready for his return. Peter's been talking about that all the way through. Verse 13, he said, but according to this promise, we are waiting for the new heaven to the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what's before us. And then in verse 14, where we started today, he says, therefore, are in light of this, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We've noted before that Peter loves his word diligent. In fact, the whole New Testament uses the word diligent over and over again. Back just in three chapters, Peter uses the word four times. In chapter 1, verse 15, remember he said, for this very reason, make every effort. That's the word right there. It's the word diligence, the same word. He says in verse 10, be all the more diligent to conform, to confirm your calling and election. He says about himself in verse 15, I will make every effort. I will be diligent to keep reminding of these things. I don't want you to ever forget them. Now, very good. We're called to be diligent. But haven't we just said this morning that everything is of grace? That everything God does in our life, all the maturity in our life, all the progress, that's the work of God by grace? Being diligent sounds like I'm supposed to do it. Like I'm supposed to work at it. Like I'm supposed to try harder. Now I want to be very, very clear. Because this issue comes up all the time as you read the New Testament. We are not saying that your salvation is by works. Salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. It's always on the ground of Christ and Christ alone. My standing with God as his child, as forever his son, is not based on my performance in any way. It's based upon what Christ has done for me. But the whole point of salvation is I'm being transformed into a new person. I'm being made like Christ which means that I begin to think like Christ, I act like Christ, I move like Christ, I imitate Christ, he lives within me. And that means he changes my very will. He changes my very heart. The result of knowing this God in this way, if it's real and true, of course makes me want to be diligent in doing what I'm called to do. This idea is the, the simplest way to explain it. It's the one we always go back to, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Be diligent. I mean, 
Work it out. Apply yourself. Give all the effort you've got to being like Christ, to be what he wants you to be. Do it with fear that you might fail. But then he goes right on, and the very next word says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That very diligence that he puts in our heart, that he, we, we crave and we want to and we, we live for, is the work of God in us, where he actually comes and transforms our will and transforms our heart. It is the energizing power of the Holy Spirit to work out what God has placed at the core of our being. So when Paul said, I am what I am, by, by the grace of God. He did not mean that we are to leave, be passive. He meant that we are to, to actively follow Jesus and serve him. My point, I, the bottom line this morning, I just want to say none of this is rocket science. None of this is too difficult for us to understand. If you're going to be a Christian that God wants you to be, that you want to be that for all eternity, you'll be thankful you were. It will mean you apply diligence to this business of living for Christ. I just ask you, are you applying diligence to the things of Christ. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, oh, come on, preacher. Dadgummit. I'm here, aren't I? I'm sitting in church. You know, it's not so easy just to get here in church. And I was in my mood group, and I go to that, and that's not easy. And I'm not saying that's not important. I think it's very important. I grieve quite over, honestly, across this country, according to statistics, Christians who name the name of Christ, who, who I thought had read the New Testament, are trying to decide, now, you know, I don't need all the church I need. I can get at home, put my feet up on the, the lazy boy and do it in my pajamas, and that's all I need. My friend, we're called to assemble together, and there's no substitute. Now, some can't be here. Some can't be here today, and God bless them. But, but to, So I, I make no small thing about us being together and assembling together, but that can't be the end of it. We apply all diligence so there'll be no spot no blemish, nothing in my life that's contrary to what I know is the will of Christ and the will of God. We've been saved by the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. And in the same way, we are to be a person who lives for the Lord and says, Lord, I, I apply all diligence till everything in me that's apart from Christ is gone. Well, one other thing he says, I think it's about the same thing, but he says not only are we to uh, be diligent, but we're to be on guard. We're to be on guard. Verse 17, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care, be on guard, that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. Now, Peter understood that problem. Peter was there that night when Jesus talked about, just before going to the cross, how hard it was going to be, and some would abandon him. And Peter said, oh, 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 Let me interrupt here, Lord. I don't know about the rest of these guys, but you can count on me. I will never deny you. I will never leave you. You can count on me. Three hours later, he repeatedly and vehemently denied the Lord Jesus Christ in front of a little servant girl of all things. He had self-confidence, but he had let down his guard. He was putting his confidence in what he could do rather than the dependence he had in Christ. <laughs> I'm getting old. And I thought, I thought when you got old, if you've been a Christian a long time, I thought that meant it gets a lot easier living for Christ. That's not near, you, you just, you had everything sort of worked out at that point, and there wasn't any, any danger, any temptations. It's not working out that way, folks. 
I'm thankful for what I know, what I've learned. But I'm telling you, the battle wages today as much as it ever did. In some ways, it seems more intense than ever. And you can't get to the place where you say, well, I know so much and I've arrived here. And I'm, and my friends, the enemy will find a way to get in there like a cancer and ruin you at the end. Be on guard. Be on guard. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't be naive. Don't trust your self-confidence. Your confidence can only be in the grace and mercy of God. You know, a lot of you, we, we've been looking at what's going on in the news, and we, we can imagine ourselves like so many people in Afghanistan, the Christians in Afghanistan, and other people there, and we think, what a, oh, well, how horrible to live in that war zone, to, to live in such danger and everywhere you turn. The tragedy is we are living in a war zone just as dangerous where spiritual warfare is raging around us in our homes, in our family, in our community. It is all around, yet many of us think we are perfectly safe, and you're not. Be on guard. There's an alertness that comes with the Christian life. It's part of diligence. So five words. That's where we're at. One goal, two tasks. The five words describe the one person the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. The one great goal of our life ought to be every day to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that certainly must include these two tasks, to be diligent every day, to apply all I've got every day to this business of being his, and certainly to stay on guard. This is not rocket So This is nothing any six-year-old kid could understand this. So how are you doing? What's the truth about you? What would the Holy Spirit tell you right now? And I wonder if you're here today and, and you haven't even done the most basic thing. You, you really can't even start this program because you haven't come to know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You say, well, I've been thinking about it. I've, I've, I've still got questions. My friend, you're going to always have questions. There'll never be a place where you get it all. You, if that's what you're looking for, that's not the God you're serving. But if you know enough that he lied for you, if you know that you're a sinner and you know that he is your only rescue and hope, Turn to him and trust him today. And then be baptized, publicly profess him, proclaim him. And then get involved in his body, the church. And grow. Get in the word. Learn it. Serve him. Count for him. You know, Peter's talked a lot about the return of Christ. I don't know everything about that, but I know Jesus is coming back bodily, physically, literally. He's going to return. It could come at any moment. And when he comes, everyone's going to be raised from the dead, both the righteous and the wicked, and they're going to have their bodies rejoined with their souls, both the saved and the unsaved. And then there's going to come the day of judgment. And he is, God is going to judge the righteous and the wicked. The righteous will be commended and blessed. The unrighteous will be condemned and assigned to eternal destruction because they never received the gift of righteousness that would come in Jesus Christ. Then there'll be a great fire that burns and purifies this world, but it will turn this world into the new heavens and the new earth where in righteousness we will live and serve Christ forever in glory. And those who have not received that will face a lake of fire. It's the same fate as the devil and the demons and all the unconverted and the wicked, and they will face an eternity of that condemnation. That is a startling reality, but it calls me to focus on Jesus, to know I have one task to grow in him and the knowledge of him every day and to be diligent and on guard to make every hour I've got count. You ought to feel the same way. I hope you do, and I hope the Lord will help you do that and make that decision afresh and anew today.